Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by audible.com with more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com slash gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for May 19th, 2016, the I Threw a Chair in Reno Just to Watch It Fly edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, joining me this week uh, at a distance, at a remove, far away. John Dickerson of Face the Nation, you are where, John? I'm in New York City. Can we just pause for a moment and, and appreciate that excellent show title you made up? Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's very sweet of you. Yeah. We'll bask uh, I, in I knew you would like it. Yeah. I, oh, my I God. Fantastic. That other voice you heard is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times, who's even though she's at the New York Times, is not in New York. She's in New Haven. Indeed, I am in New Haven, in my lair. On this week's GabFest, is the Democratic Party falling apart? We'll talk about that. Then, this week in Trumpiness, groping, tax returns, Megyn Kelly, the usual uh, plethora of, of Trump. Then, the Supreme Court whimperingly punts on the contraceptive mandate case it was facing, we will talk about that. We will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, should the Olympics be canceled, banned, disbarred? Should the torch be extinguished? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Do not forget, Washingtonians and people near Washington, July 13th, 2016 at 7 p.m. Right before the conventions, we have a D.C. live show at the Warner Theater and you can get tickets for that at slate.com slash live and more information. July 13th, slate.com slash live. Over the past few years, and especially in the past few months, we've become accustomed to those Republican Party is cracking up stories. These stories always say the Republican Party has lost coherence. It no longer has policies that correspond with what its base believes or wants, that it is riven between its cynical appeasers and its bug-eyed ideological lunatics. Now, friends, it's the Democratic Party's turn for this. The persistence of the Sanders campaign, including another big primary win this week, a nasty confrontation at a Nevada delegate, Nevada delegate selection conference, and the unwillingness of Sanders and Sanders supporters simply to bow themselves into the Clinton camp is distressing some Democrats and also making them wonder whether the party has an irreparable fracture. So, John, what happened in Nevada 
And does what happened in Nevada matter? Yeah, what did happen in Nevada? <laughs> so I uh, basically it's a it was a fight over seating delegates, and the and the Sanders people felt railroaded by the system and by the uh, state party chair. The convention was a like I think it was like a fifteen hour affair. There were three bars outside. People hadn't eaten all day. Hillary Clinton won by five points. The Sanders people felt like they were being railroaded by the state party in the convention. And they yelled at Barbara Boxer, who was there as a surrogate on behalf of Hillary Clinton. There is a lot of footage of people sort of scuffling and shouting. What actually happened relative to the way it was characterized is also part of the story. So the the Clinton folks and the state party folks, there's already, there was an ongoing dispute even before this where the Sanders forces have launched a lawsuit against the state party to begin with. But then the Clinton forces and the state party forces characterized the Sanders group as being thuggish and excessively violent, and then suggested that Bernie Sanders was inciting this. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz essentially suggested that, the chairwoman of the Democratic Party. And then you have people like Dianne Feinstein, senator from California, saying she's seeing visions of 1968 and the and the riots that took place at the at the Democratic Convention. We can talk about why that is fantastical. But but in in describing this as a violent Sanders-inspired event, they're trying to suggest that he's kind of encouraging this, and therefore what he feels is that they're creating that as a bogeyman um, to try to shut his people down and quiet him up and say that he's behaving out of bounds, and his argument is these are legitimate disputes people have. It's not just about Nevada. It's then about the larger claim, which is basically he and particularly his supporters feel like the system is rigged against them. And that, of course, feeds into the larger story that he's been telling during this campaign, which is that the insiders control the system, both the political system when it comes to nominating candidates, but also the political system that uh, deals with legislation and governance and the voice of the people or the politicians who are not bought by the special interests are, is always getting drowned out. Emily, do you think this is a genuine ideological split uh, among Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters and Sanders and Clinton, this idea that the whole system is rigged, uh, that there's insiders and outsiders and, and the, the kind of main policy goals they want, or is it real? is it, is it, is it, a, is an actual substantive split or is it sort of a question of degree where they have the same goals in mind, their speed and methods for getting to them are different? Well, there are some splits. I mean, there's a split over free trade, for instance, that seems to me like a genuine division. And then there's all the like resentment and grumbling, legitimate, perhaps, and fomenting over the process, which isn't ideological. I mean, I realize that when you say the system is rigged, it plays nicely into Sanders' um, larger claims about how the financial system is rigged and inequality. But when he's talking about the mechanisms of the Democratic Party, that's a different kind of insider game. I mean, he may have real grievances. That seems completely plausible to me. But it, it it's about the inner workings of the party as opposed to like American democracy or government. I mean, these private as we've we often remind ourselves like these parties are private entities. I mean, I think it matters for the future of the Democratic Party, how his complaints get surfaced and what happens and, you know, whether he stays in it. But it's very hard for me to separate right now the problems with the process, which it completely like I'm receptive to the idea that the process is messed up because it seems like every nominating process is messed up. 
But then there also are these strong personalities in his camp, right? He has this really feisty campaign advisors who seem to be egging him on, and he himself is someone who likes to stir things up. And so I'm having a little trouble separating the personality element of this from the substantive complaints. Do you guys think that on the right, we've had this enormous rise of of an extremely ideological, uncompromising, very conservative movement, which has pulled the country to the right and pulled that party to the right very successfully, whereas we Democrats have not done the same thing. And it's time for us to wake up and to develop our own progressive media with our own progressive heroes, our own progressive books, uh, our own language of paranoia and and confrontation. Do, do you guys think that I, that's what I see happening? But maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm just fatalistic about it. Well, first of all, we've had these moments in democratic politics before with McGovern and McCarthy and Jerry Brown and Howard Dean. So there has always been this strain within the democratic party and you, and you see it, it, the language is almost identical, which is basically, I mean, when you read what Gary Hart was writing about McGovern in 1972, about people taking the process back from the special interests and the moneyed interests, you, it just sounds, it's just like right out of Bernie Sanders's mouth. And then the second thing is Hillary Clinton still has gotten 3 million more votes. So the unlike in the conservative movement in the Republican Party, where the conservatives started to be the bigger force, this is a powerful force, but it's not the larger force at the moment. Um, well, but but even in the conservative movement, it has been it's taken a long time. But you know, Romney and McCain were both nominees. Even though it's clear that the conservative force of the party has is, is the driving force, even as late as 2012, you had Romney being nominated, not a very conservative person. I don't think you could argue that the Republican Party was had not become more conservative, right. even though Romney was nominated. Yes, that's a good I, point. John, just to go back to your first point there, a question about that. In this idea that this is a historical cycle, that this has happened to the Democrats before and it just doesn't stick, why would it have stuck more on the Republican side and not on the Democratic well, side over this past I generation? I guess my only point was that we've seen passion and this kind of push inside the Democratic Party before and so uh, it's not sufficient evidence of a total shift in the party since we've seen it before. I mean, Teddy Kennedy, 1980s, another year, right, runs against a sitting president where the party had all the reasons in the world to kind of keep Kennedy out because why do you want to hurt our guy who's going to be renominated? We just saw the Republicans in 1976 destroy themselves. Why do we want to go stick those car keys in the light socket? Nevertheless, Kennedy, you know, emerged from 1980 as a liberal hero of the party. If Bernie Sanders, if the math is still, and we should talk about that in a minute, but if the math is is the way it is and Hillary Clinton is going to go to the nomination, what happens to his movement? Kennedy said the dream shall never die. And then Kennedy stuck around for a while and kind of kept that dream alive. Who is the Ronald Reagan to the Barry Goldwater, to continue with the Republican analogy? Goldwater loses right. in 64, but who, but Reagan comes right in and is the is the the sunnier face of the same ideological movement. So if Sanders is first generation, but then people thought Dean was first generation. So anyway, but who's the person who comes and and uh, and takes Sanders's movement and the people who appealed to by what he says, but but does it in a slightly more palatable way so he can get enough votes. You could imagine Elizabeth Warren playing that role. I'm not sure she's sunny enough, though. And I, the other thing I always think and she's about, too old. That's true. But I, I also wonder if whether part of why we forget about all of the cycling John just told us about is 
President Obama. Like Obama, right, is this combination of some pretty centrist domestic policy views, especially when he came into office and was all about, you know, welcoming some new era of non-bipartisanship, some fake idea that Washington was going to change. And yet he had this like hip liberal aesthetic that attracted not exactly the same people as the Sanders movement, but, you know, a lot of young people, a lot of people of color, this feeling of like excitement he generated was so specific to him. He was sort of able to paper over like or sort of throw his own persona over this chasm that we see again and again right. in the Democratic Party. And now like the aftermath of that is like that figure's gone. Hillary Clinton is a really different political person, a really different brand. And it seems like that's also just factoring in here, right? You also don't have the wars uh, to act as a unifying, the wars and George W. Bush to act as a unifying force that keeps people together. The problems in the conservative movement were papered over with the George W. Bush candidacy because they wanted to get rid of the Clintons. As a kind of pure matter of equity and and payback and fair play, I applaud the progressive movement. I admire most of its goals, many of its goals. It is perfectly just and right that the progressives should want a larger voice in the Democratic Party and should be tired of the incrementalism and disappointed about things. I, I don't I'm not gainsaying that at all. As an American, I'm frankly terrified that the Democratic Party would go in the direction that the Republican Party has gone. Because the idea you're worried that, that we, Trump is going to get that, elected or because you just see us like No, no, not because polls. I'm worried that Trump is getting moving to these two polls and that the that that what has happened and we can we've talked about this before is that that the space that politics is effectively the the art of the compromise whatever, but it's working with people you don't particularly agree with on most things to get 60% of what you want. And a huge chunk of the Republican Party has basically given that away and has said politics is no longer a valid form of of discourse. We don't want it. And if the Democratic Party, which has has maintained that much more readily over the last generation, uh, if a huge chunk of the Democratic Party abandons that, we're we're totally screwed. The, the, it's terrifying. Like you need you need to have competent hackish people like Mitt Romney, like Hillary Clinton, for politics to work in this country. It does not work. Like Barack Obama, it doesn't work when you have idealists. And we are in danger of having idealists on both sides of the aisle soon. And that's going to be terrible. And, and Trump is is part of the why it's dangerous, because you get these strong men who will propose to bridge it with their personality. As a citizen, the idea that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is sort of is saying as much screw you to politics as the conservative wing of the Republican Party is is alarming. Sanders has been saying that basically it's possible for him to go to the convention with a, a majority of pledged delegates. Um, and that's just not, he would have to win basically by 35 points in California by one calculation I saw. I mean, that's not a steep hill. That's basically impossible. I mean, it's impossible for him to win the majority and pledge delegates. Uh, he's going to need superdelegates to switch from their allegiance for, to Hillary Clinton in the numbers of hundreds. And I guess my question is, is whether people have a fair claim to make when they say he's leading his supporters on. And then secondarily, where, whether anybody thinks that by suggesting it's possible for him to win in pledge delegates, if he doesn't, whether he creates a situation in which his supporters think that the only reason he lost was not because he actually lost and Hillary Clinton got three million more votes and won in earlier contests 
but because the system was somehow rigged. Whether this notion that it's still possible for him to win in pledged delegates encourages the kind of conspiracy thinking that in the end might lead to a real to a real crack up in the party, whether you guys think that's the case. I mean, that's the real danger here, the sort of like live wire that runs under Sanders' continued candidacy and is making Democrats nervous. I guess I have to think that when it is actually one Democrat against Donald Trump, that the party is going to get its act together. Okay, we don't have a war. We don't have George Bush. But for that, you know, for Democrats, like the idea of Trump being president could be just as galvanizing. It should be. Let's leave this uh, topic there. Now a word from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. When you run a small business, every minute counts. Taking a trip to the post office is not a good use of your time. Not a good use of your time. Not a good use of your business's time. Not a good use of your team's time. I had this experience the other week. I run a small business and I had to get something done at the post office. And I went to the Greenpoint post office and there was this line and I went mad and I lost, you know, a not insignificant portion of my day online at the post office. You should save time and put that energy where it matters with stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Okay, so what happened with Donald Trump this week? Every week it feels like it every week feels like a month when it comes to the Donald Trump campaign. There was the New York Times story about his history of skeezy, bullying, shaming behavior toward women. There was the news about his increasingly adamant refusal to release his tax returns, something every major presidential candidate has done for the past 40 years. His growing attacks on Hillary Clinton for enabling Bill Clinton's gross behavior towards women. His softball interview with Megyn Kelly. There was a great piece by Robert Kagan about Trump as a fascist, and this is how fascism starts in a country, and how Trump is a representation of that. Alarming. There was just a lot of there's a lot of Trump news. We won't we won't probably get to all of it, but let's talk about some of the the snazziest of it. What Emily did we learn from that New York Times story about Trump's behavior towards women that we didn't know already? There were no there was no crimes uh, described in it. There was a lot of boorish behavior, disgusting approaches towards women, um, and his the general sense that they exist as flesh to him. They exist as trophies, not to say he doesn't have women who work for him who don't like to work for him because he clearly does, but that, that there's something gross in his eagerness to shame, to sh- both to shame them and then to to trof- trophyize them. Yeah, I mean, he's like the er-objectifier of women. Almost every interaction had some physicality in it. The way he taught has talked about his wives, women who work for him, you know, meeting someone and trotting her upstairs to put on a bathing suit, telling someone else who was gaining weight that, you know, she was eating too much candy. Like, just as you said, women as flesh as opposed to human beings. And then the other detail that really stuck with me was the woman who said that, 
she got him a DJT vanity license plate. And then she was like, you know, golden forever after in her relationship with him. I mean, he is just a person of very surface desires and impulses. There's something like fundamentally unserious about him that is such an ill match for the American presidency. However, amazing a match it is for, you know, reality television and the media circus that he is just playing so brilliantly right now. There was this moment this week where his, in the course of two days, I think his wife, Melania, in in a conversation or in a speech said he was not Hitler or not like Hitler. Uh, and then his daughter, Ivanka, when it was put set out to play defense against this New York Times story and was saying he was not a, I think, not a groper <laughs> uh, or not a harasser. I can't remember. So in any other campaign to, you know, the women coming out to have to say things like that or saying things like that, that would be it. The campaign, you would be, it would be the campaign would be totally dead. John, why is it that with these issues, these which are really disturbing issues for a lot of us, why is it that his the set of rules around him continues to be the set of rules around him and not the rules that apply to, to all other politicians? We don't know exactly yet that they don't apply to, to him. But, I mean, clearly, gosh, get, this is going to be the question going from now until the 7th or 8th of November. Part of it is Hillary Clinton. Part of it is the when you're out of power. Uh, and, I mean, he did win the nomination. And so people are rallying around him as the Republican. And they'd rather see a Republican in office than a Democrat. And part of it is, is it's early. And we'll see what the general election electorate looks like and what it starts to think, and then we'll be able to take a better reading probably around Labor Day. Do you think he's going to get away with not releasing his tax returns? I think that he probably is going to get away with it, which is confounding. One imagines that if we ever saw the tax returns, they would first of all show us that he doesn't have as much money as he says, and second of all, that he's using tax shelters in ways that he has denied. And Clinton has been trying to begin to make hay with this, and this is where she has damaged herself because by refusing to release the transcript of her Goldman Sachs speeches, she's in the position of kind of hiding something too. It's not the same thing, obviously, and her tax reforms are all out there, but she's just not the best positioned person to fire off these salvos. Why doesn't she release those stupid speeches? I don't know. Why, John? Why does she not release them? It is Uh, bizarre. There, I mean, she must have said something crazy in them. Well, or just, or just super, cozy like, enough. Kiss up. Yeah, right. I mean, they're paying you two hundred thousand dollars. Just the normal rules of flattery would kick in, and you would you would say about these Wall Street banks, you know, you're doing a great thing for the American economy, or uh, something that could be. I'm so glad to uh, be here among my a, people. Magnified not only by the actual context, but also then people would say, well, look at what she says in private, you know? So crooked Hillary, right? She says in public that, that Wall Street is is doing bad things, but in private, she says this. So it's like, it's a double, it's a double bummer for her. The email server is another problem for her and her answers are not nourishing. So when you've got all those liabilities, prosecuting the tax question also gets you into a conversation about things that are uncomfortable for you. What is the Clinton campaign road testing against Trump? There were they released a whole or a, pa, a super PAC associated with Clinton started dropping ads this week. What's the what's the message? Well, there are a bunch of women dis- dismissing him, complaining about the things he said, saying the things that he has said about women in their own voices. I liked that one. The general strategy, as I understand it at the moment, is let the super PAC do that stuff. 
define him fast and early the minute he gets the nomination, because what we're seeing, I think, in the polls and even things like the New York Times magazine cover where he's he's shown with confetti all around him, there is a validation he is getting by having won his party's nomination that and it's part of the reason these these Republicans are slipping in behind him, that it papers over the other stuff. So on the one hand, the you know New York Times newspaper is running a story about his relationship with women, which calls his character into question. But the image of Donald Trump surrounded by confetti sends the message, he's a winner, he's been validated. And so it acts as, um, not exculpatory, but it makes him kind of look well, like he's weathered all the right? earlier. Yes, thank you. I mean, you. this is the huge challenge that he poses for the media. Once he's the nominee, or even now as the presumptive nominee, it is hard to treat him as toxic, radioactive, right? You just like, it creates a dilemma for the coverage. Yeah, and I think another thing that's happening with him is basically two things I've noticed uh, with Trump. One is when I talked to the chairman of the party last weekend, you know, and you talk about these various issues that he has, why doesn't he release his tax returns? That has been the standard for candidates, particularly ones that have not held public office and been under the kind of scrutiny that public officials get. That's a standard. That's a way you measure them and their behavior and their character and their ethics against a certain standards. And basically, Ryan Priebus said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because people don't care about that and people like Donald Trump. That kind of relativism, which is basically issues only matter if people care about them, was what Republicans used to rightly decry with Bill Clinton, was that the fact that he's popular doesn't mean he shouldn't still be held to a certain set of standards. The other thing that's happening is basically all these lawmakers who are signing up with him, Donald Trump, You, when you ask them the specifics of his signature policy proposals, ban on Muslim immigration, deporting 11 million plus immigrants. They say, well, no, that's not, I don't agree with that. That's not going to happen. But if has there ever been a party nominee whose signature items are so quickly dismissed by the rest of the party and the people who are supporting him? I can't think of a, of a party nominee where that's been the case. I mean, it's not like deporting 11 million and the Muslim ban are little things he mentioned, you know, on a little, uh, like at the side of a golf course. I mean, these were the central, these were central moments in his campaign. Yeah. Let's uh, leave it there. Now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Harry's. For far too long, you've either paid too much for a comfortable shave or you've settled for a low-priced and low-quality razor. Harry's offers something you've never had before, a great shave at a fair price. As GapFest listeners know, I am a devoted Harry's customer, extremely satisfied one. In fact, you're catching me on a Thursday when I've just done my favorite weekly ritual of beard trimming and neck shaving and did that in the, in the shower this morning with my Harry's razor. It was delightful. Harry's products are not only great quality, they're half the price of the leading brand. Their factory direct prices cut out the middleman, so you're not paying pricey upcharges. Harry's starter set, which is called the Truman, which is a nice John Dickerson whistle-stop shout-out, is a great option for new customers and an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code GABFEST. Go to harrys.com right now and look for the Truman set. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code GABFEST at checkout to get $5 off and help support the show. 
Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try today. All right. Next topic. Zubik versus Burwell. Take it away, Emily. This has sort of become the no fun case. So this case is about whether religious schools and organizations, not churches, but, you know, nonprofit organizations with a religious bent, what exactly they have to do to get out of providing contraceptive insurance, insurance that covers contraception to their employees. They currently have to submit a form. They don't want to submit the form. They say that that burdens their freedom of religion. The Supreme Court took this case when it had nine members and might have resolved it. And now that it has eight members and is trying to not just split four to four on everything, the court did this really interesting thing. It kind of stepped in in a mediating role and said, wait a sec, is there some way that these organizations and the government could kind of like get together and hammer this out and just figure out some kind of administrative fix for this supposedly deep religious philosophical question. So the parties went back, the government went back, the lawyers for religious groups went back, they filed additional briefs. And then this week, the Supreme Court said, you know what, we're just sending this whole thing back to the lower court. We're not answering any of the questions we said we were going to answer about whether this actually burdens religious expression. We're just going to say, like, can you guys just go work this out? And we'll see. There are now 13 cases going back to the lower courts. The question of what they actually were asked to work out is pretty in the weeds has to do with, you know, their insurers and exactly how they talk to their insurers. But myself, I kind of think it's fine to send this back and try to work this out. But it also is just such a reflection of what happens when you only have an even number of people on the highest court in the land. They just can't resolve questions with speed or sometimes at all. And it's going to be really interesting to watch that develop over what's probably going to be the next year, um, or at least certainly through the rest of the term, with only eight justices. Is there any way this is good in the sense that, like, Tell them, go back and work it out and find some accommodation. And maybe in that process, they'll actually get back to that compromise David was talking about earlier, as opposed to just always needing the courts to adjudicate these kinds of things. Sort of, I mean, that certainly wasn't the case with voting rights, but um, I'm looking for a silver lining here, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make that argument. You know, so what the government said when the Supreme Court asked for this additional briefing a month ago or whenever that was, the government said, hey, you know what? We already went through like a long drawn out process of administrative rulemaking here with notice and comment and all the stuff that we were supposed to do. Let me just parenthetically insert this is what the government did not do when it took action about deportation relief, right? But in this case, they did like go through all the administrative steps. And so they're not so happy to have been sent back to the drawing board. And the religious groups essentially said, you know, we're up for listening to another alternative here, sure, but we refuse to do anything that forces us to take any kind of step whatsoever. Anything that will make it seem as if they're opening the door to contraception coverage for their employees, they don't want to do any of that. Part of me just has felt from the beginning like this is a kind of a case that is much ado about nothing. And that's not to say I don't see the religious objection here, but just that it, it's so hyper-administrative, bureaucratic, and technical. It's just like not that interesting to think about what form people should have to sign if they don't want to pay for birth control for their employees. Huzzah. So I feel yeah. a little like just 
a sense of like fatigue about having to all the like work that's going to go into this question, um, which isn't that interesting a question to me. But maybe that's me. But, but people want to be victims. They want to be they want their religious liberty to be victimized. They enjoy and that. they want to have a and, fight with the Obama so, administration. Yeah. Just pause for 10 seconds for me to, again, the, this case is yet another case that hi- highlights how insane it is that your employer is your vehicle for your health insurance. <laughs> yes. All right. Can I ask a, a slightly different question, which is we've seen in the past 25 years with this conservative majority Supreme Court, but increasingly in the past 10 years, a really strategic effort by conservative legal groups and and conservatives generally to bring cases that will get them favorable rulings from the Supreme Court and to change jurisprudence around, say, the Second Amendment or around religious liberty or corporate political funding and and powers of corporations. So I presume that when the court flips to a 5-4 liberal majority, which is it is likely to do if Hillary Clinton is elected president, there will be something similar happening on the left where the left has is has a whole set of issues that it wants to get supreme court rulings on and it is it is right now planting seeds so are, is there evidence that in lower courts now liberals are starting to bring cases which they think oh we can we'll be able to flip citizens united if we if we get this thing going and we'll start it now because in in 18 months we know we're going to have a liberal supreme court so let's get this case going same sex marriage that's a really good question i don't think so. My sense is that so the problem with Citizens United is that Citizens United itself started a process that has contributed to but maybe led to other stuff. Like there's a DC circuit ruling that relies on Citizens United that allowed for the super PACs. And then there's like the total paralysis of the Federal Elections Commission and the ways in which that has allowed all these like dark money slash, quote, social welfare organizations to influence elections with spending and say that they're not. And so it's a little hard to put the genie back in the bottle at this point. And I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure people are thinking about the litigation strategy is for doing that. But I don't actually know how like where where it starts. It's a really interesting question that I should figure out the answer to, or someone should. This week, Donald Trump announced 11 people who he thought might be um, people he would put on the court if he were made president. Two questions. One, I know Ronald Reagan said he would appoint a woman to the court, but I can't think of another instance in which you had a presidential candidate naming names. You know, they say they like Scalia or they like, but naming actual names, I've never heard of that. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is he said they're all pro-life. Don't Supreme Court justice nominees usually say, well, I think Roe versus Wade was de- was decided wrongly, and that's the way they convey their view on questions of abortion, but they don't go out and just say they're pro-life, right? <laughs> right. I mean, but this is, again, like the beauty of Donald Trump is he just like says what you're not supposed to say, which is that, of course— the next Republican nominee for the Supreme Court is going to be pro-life and have a staunch and clear record on that issue. And he's just cutting around all of the like obfuscating people do. In fact, you know, recall, too, that when John Roberts and Samuel Alito had their hearings, they didn't even want to talk about Roe versus Wade. They went back to, uh, you know, they they were more interested in supporting the right to privacy in Griswold versus Connecticut, which is a much older ruling about um, how married people are allowed to use birth control. I mean, it just so Trump is just like doing an end run around all of that blather. And uh, that's kind of refreshing, I suppose. Now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is audible.com. 
so you're a podcast listener, which means you understand the pleasure, the joy of audio entertainment. That means you should understand the pleasure and joy of listening with Audible and the joy of listening to the incredible variety of books and other audio products that Audible has. They have more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. And you can take Audible with you wherever you go, listening on your smartphone, your computer, your tablet. You can choose from titles such as Mastery by Robert Greene. In this book, Greene has compiled years of research findings and interviews concerning the lives of some of the great historical figures of the world, such as Charles Darwin, Mozart, and Temple Grandin, to try to uncover what makes humans hardwired for achievement and supremacy, and how we can use this knowledge to gain control over our own lives. John Dickerson, who is, of course, an avid, avid Audible listener, is listening to Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris, and he he reports that he is enjoying it enormously. So that's another Audible book that you could listen to uh, when you're not listening to the GabFest. You can find Mastery or Me Talk Pretty One Day and almost any other book you'd want of any other genre at audible.com. And as a special offer to GabFest listeners, you can get a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash GabFest. That's audible.com slash GabFest. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. That one little delightful taste of something magical that you want to share with your friends. Um, and for this Cocktail Chatter, we have a special guest. Emily and John, I don't even think you realize this. This is intern L. Biscard Church's last day. I do oh, realize no. that. As our it intern. is quite heartbreaking. It is a sad day. L is being replaced by Kevin Townsend, who will be magical in his own way, but not in the way that L was. So um, one of our GapFest traditions is a final day chatter from, from a departing intern. So L, come on in. Come on to the studio. Yay, L. She doesn't have her headphones on, so she can't hear you yet. All right. Here's L. Hey, L. Hello. Hi. <laughs> now Elle's in the studio. She's here. She's perched at, at the green mic. Elle, you've been a great intern. You really have been a wonderful intern. And you're going off to do, do you want to say what you're going off to do? I don't know if I'm allowed to yet, oh. but I'll be in New York City for a fellowship. It's very exciting. And thank you. It's been such a, a pleasure to be here and work with you all, especially during such an interesting time, uh, the presidential election and the rise of a notorious someone. So thank you. Uh, thank you. And uh, do you have a chatter for us? I do. So I'm going to be a bit sneaky, but follow the precedent of Tarek, the other wonderful intern who had uh, two chatters. I'll make mine quick and it'll it'll work together. So I just wanted to chatter firstly about a exhibition that I saw at the Phillips Gallery somewhat recently. Um, you might have seen it. I don't know, David, if you have or John or Emily, but the Migration Series by Jacob Lawrence. I think is a really, really remarkable set of art. And I think it was an important reminder for me. So Jacob Lawrence did this when he was 23 years old. He studied in the Harlem Public Library, the Great Migration of African Americans up to the north. And, you know, it's it's a set it's a series of art in these rather simple figurines and objects and colors, but is is really beautiful and I think was a powerful reminder that maybe in a time when mainstream media isn't so focused anymore on the plight of minority groups and people of color in particular as as compared at least to over the summer when Black Lives Matter was gaining more momentum that there are other mediums that can remind us of 
our history and things that are very important to us, seeing the plight of African Americans leaving the South and all those harsh realities there, but then the hope of upward expansion moving up to the North was was powerful. And it folds into my next chatter, which is just about an incredible investigative piece by ProPublica from a few months back, in which two reporters, Paul Keel and Annie Waldman, explored debt collection in the United States. They looked into debt collection in St. Louis, Chicago, and Newark, and they found an incredible racial disparity. So there's these new kind of debt collection companies that actually garnish people's wages. So these companies will actually take an individual to court, they will sue them, and they almost always succeed. These individuals are almost always people of color. And then they gain the power to actually take out up to like 25% of someone's wages on each paycheck. And this is usually in people who make twenty five to 40000 a year or even less. And of course, this investigation found that it is predominantly in communities of color and and so so why is this happening? Is it because these debt collection companies are fundamentally racist or biased? Actually, what the investigation found was that this results from the fact that there's this incredible racial wealth gap that of that results from you know <laughs> centuries of oppression and you know black families not being able to buy homes, not being able to invest in the ways that white families and individuals have. So just a couple stunning statistics. Today, the typical black household has a net worth of $11,000, while that of a typical white household is about 142000 So I think sometimes when we are looking at these issues, we forget this incredible history that Jacob Lawrence helps us to remember and that these kind of investigative pieces, I hope, will remind us of like the, the the real issues that are facing so many Americans today. That's my chatter. Thank you, Elle. Excellent. That was great. Why don't Thank you stay you. for a state plus too while, while you're here? Okay, okay. Um, uh, John, what's your chatter? What is my chatter? Oh, uh, my chatter is just a, a, a little advertisement that I uh, found while I was doing um, some research in connection with the uh, last gasp of, of the book work that I'm working on. Who we, and we should all huzzah for Elle, who has been helping me in my last desperate hours also on the book. Yay, Elle. While I was, yeah, it, she's <laughs> been a wonderful part of the Whistle Stop team. Um, in 1952, as we'll all remember, it's really the first election that the networks really throw their back into uh, into big, broad coverage of it. And in the, I was came across a, an advertisement in the Des Moines Register, and it says, for Republicans only, and then there's an ellipsis, who cannot attend in person the convention next week, you are entitled to all the facts firsthand. An RCA Victor TV set or radio set gives you a ringside seat. The drama, the romance, the truth of the big story is yours from your armchair. Take no chances. Get an RCA Victor TV or radio set now. So they were selling TVs and radios based on the excitement of the political convention. So if we wonder why these conventions get televised, even when nothing happens, this is part of the leftover sort of pomp and ceremony and romance of what political conventions were like. They were they were worthy enough to be uh, something that you could sell and get people to actually buy a television, which in some cases was the first television they were buying. Cool. Emily, what is your chatter? I am reading... 
Eligible, the new book by Curtis Sittenfeld, which is getting lots of attention, lots of sales, mixed reviews. I really like it. It's like it's cotton candy. It's fun to read. Lots of little short chapters. And I need a break right now from (laughs) anything serious or difficult. But my question about it is this. So we're talking about this book on the Slate Audio Book Club in June. And so I feel like I should go read Pride and Prejudice, which it is very explicitly based on. And maybe I should go watch one of the many visual renderings of Pride and Prejudice. I am open to suggestions from readers. I think I watched like a long BBC version of Pride and Prejudice and really liked it several years ago, Mm -hmm. but I can't really remember. My question, though, really, is about Jane Austen and boys. So I had this approach to my boys when they were younger, and I had a little more control over them, where I read out loud to them various classics of girls' literature that I really, really loved. So they listened to the Betsy Tacey books and Anne of Green Gables and a few other things along the way. I can't really do this to them anymore. They just, like, Laura Ingalls Wilder, okay. But Jane Austen has not entered their universe. And part of this is because my older son had to read Jane Eyre. I know, different person, different Bronte. Um, But, I mean, not even, I know Jane Austen's name is not Bronte. Different writer. He really didn't like Jane Eyre. And that sort of. Jane Austen was really a different Bronte. (laughs) She also was not at all the same Hemingway. (laughs) So, my question, I guess, for you guys or, or our listeners is this like, are, should I really forge ahead? Should I somehow figure out how to, like, poor pride and prejudice into their brains? Or is it okay to have boys who just never read Jane Austen because they suffered through Jane Eyre? This is my dilemma. I have strong views on this. Oh, good. So I was read Jane Austen uh, as a child by my father, mostly. Um, And I I think my brother probably was too. Possibly only pride and prejudice, certainly pride and prejudice. And it created in me a love, you know, a deep, deep, deep love of Pride and Prejudice. I also read Pride and Prejudice to my daughter, and that went pretty well. Although I found it, I found the dialogue goes brilliantly. Like as a sort of the theatrics of it are great. The kind of non-dialogue portions of the book are a little bit harder going when I think she was maybe 12 when I read it. But I have totally failed with my sons. Um, I think in general, because as you get your second and third children, you're just like, you lose. Lazy. You get dispirited generally and, and can't, don't have time or energy for anything. But as a as a person who was himself pride and prejudiced as a boy, I endorse it. And how do you have any idea how old you were when your dad mostly read you Pride and Prejudice? I can ask him. I would guess it was, I think it was sort of 10, 11, 12, hmm, which okay. is probably too young. Well, I don't know. I think that. it's one of the the best books ever written. And I, I don't know if it matters when you get to it. I read it when I was first year out of college, actually, and it was incredibly meaningful and special then. So maybe it doesn't matter exactly when. I had to read Persuasion, um, another Jane Austen novel, in school and then came to Pride and Prejudice later. But it was either the book or one of the books, it may have been the book, that unlocked my love of literature and learning and basically set me on the path that I'm still stumbling along today. Like the intricacy of the writing and the story and the answer mm-hmm. in my view is you, you must um, make So it's not so much pride and prejudice. It's just uh, Jane Austen is, you know, fabulous anyway. And so keep working on it, Emily. I think you could get there. 
I this makes me frustrated that my children read Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights instead of Jane Austen, which just seems so much more approachable for teenagers. Oh well. My chatter, I'm going to do two quick chatters also in the spirit of the day. First one is super quick, which is just that I saw the movie Brooklyn this week. And I like movies where there's no one's in danger, nothing happens, and it's all happy. And, <laughs> and this one Brooklyn really. really fits the bill. If you just want to have, you know, snuggle up with your honey and, and just uh, have a nice evening. It's romantic. It's beautiful. It's, and it, it will not raise your heart rate. And it glorifies the Irish, doesn't it? And it glorifies the Irish. And also, my God, you get to listen to people speaking with Irish accents. The, my other chatter is a, a fantastic story that was in the Daily Beast last night about Senator Bob Bennett, the late Senator Bob Bennett, who is a Utah, very conservative Republican senator who died. Although not conservative enough. He was run out because he wasn't conservative enough. Yes, but he's he's pretty he's pretty conservative by the standards of like normal normalcy. He was beaten by a Tea Party Mike Lee of the Tea Party because he'd voted for TARP. But Bob Bennett died a couple of weeks ago. But um, this is a story about as he was dying, what happened to him? His children and his I think his wife and his widow his his widow and his son reported this to the Daily Beast that as Bennett was dying, he became really concerned about Trump and in particular about what Trump was saying about Muslims. And he and Bennett made this conscious effort to go to Muslims and thank them for being in the country and talk about how much they valued them and apologize to them on behalf of the Republican Party for what Trump was saying. And it's a it's a really kind of lovely and disturbing story about a man who's who's sort of torn by conscience about what had happened to his party and about what was happening to the country. I strongly recommend that you give it a read and and uh, give thanks to the decency of Bob Bennett. Our intern for the last time is El Biscard Church. Thank you, El. It's, we thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Even though we thanked you two minutes ago. Our yes. new intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. And you can look at all the Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook is facebook.com slash GabFest. Uh, email is GabFest at slate.com. And Twitter is at SlateGabFest. Of course, please subscribe to us in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Talk to you next week. Get your tickets to our DC live show before that. Hey, I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the culture editor of Slate. It is time to use that amazing, shiny new Amazon Echo in your house for something other than just ordering snacks. Listen to Slate's news and culture briefing, 90 seconds with Slate. In your Alexa app, you just choose Slate as one of your flash briefing sources and then ask Alexa, what's going on today? Then you can leave the world to us for a minute and a half. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.